Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. A prominent streamer in his own right, international master Eric Rosen is the author of the August 2020 Chess Life cover story, The New Chess Boom. The cover for the issue, created by Neil Jameson and directed by our art director, Frankie Butler, has gotten quite a bit of attention online, something that I imagine will come up as we discuss. But I believe that Rosen's article will end up garnering just as much attention now that the issue is in mailboxes and online. At just 26 years of age, Eric Rosen has already carved himself out a prominent place in the modern chess ecosystem. Uh, He is uh, widely known on Twitch and YouTube for his streaming efforts, which distinguish themselves, in my opinion, particularly on YouTube, for their high production values. A FIDE master in 2011 and an international master in 2015, Eric did not let his chess distract from his education, earning a BA from Webster University, where he was on the world-famous Webster chess team. On his website... IamRosen.com, among his many other accomplishments to stand out. In 2018, he, quote, unknowingly defeated Magnus Carlsen in the Lee Chess titled arena, and he, quote, appeared on the front page of Reddit. Having seen my brother do the same thing recently, I know what a big deal that second one is. Will Eric be as witty and relaxed in an audio format as opposed to video? Probably. But let's find out. With that, let's welcome Eric Rosen to the show. Hello, Eric. Thanks so much, John. I, I really appreciate the introduction. Uh, I, I, I do have to ask, what caused your brother to reach the, the front page of Reddit? Ah, I, um, I'm sure he will be very proud. Uh, my brother recorded a, uh, a freakout. Mm. So a, uh, what is it, a real life freakout? Is that the name of the subreddit or uh, Reddit freakouts or something along those lines? Oh, like oh, I I I know what you mean. Yeah, like these uh, these crazy yeah, he, videos. Yeah, he yeah he he was in his car. Uh, shout out to my brother Andrew Hartman. Um, I'm sure he's listening. He's a big friend of this podcast, of course. He uh, yeah he was uh, sitting waiting in his car to pick something up, and uh, he he witnessed a freak out in real time. Um, and I think what got him to the front page was that a he recorded in horizontal, uh, not vertical, which is a big faux pas. I'm told that's clutch, right? Yes. <laughs> and uh, he also said, uh, oh man, I can't wait to put this up on something, something freakouts. Uh, that, that helps too. <laughs> yeah, he, he really, he like hit all the bases. So yeah, being on the front page of Reddit's a big deal. Yeah, th- those things can take off like wildfire. What, what, what were you on the front page of Reddit for? Um, so, I mean, what you referred to it was um, unknowingly beating Magnus Carlsen in uh, the titled arena uh. um, on Lee Chess, where he was playing on, on some anonymous account. Um, I, I don't think too many people know this, but that was not the first time a piece of content of mine reached the front page of, of Reddit. Um, actually, one of the very first YouTube videos I uploaded um, way before my chess channel, this was back in 2007, recorded a video of my dog watching TV. 
<laughs> and he was also like reached the front page of Reddit, was on the Colbert Report. Um, so that was uh, the first kind of exposure to internet virality. And how old were you then? Uh, 2007, I was probably like 13 or 14 years old. Wow. So th- this, your interest in, in the internet and, um, and mass media is, is not something new then. It's, it's been ongoing for a long time. Yeah, it took a while to, um, to actually start a chess channel. But um, yeah, I've, I've kind of had a, an early experience, especially with like YouTube partnership and, um, and, and having, uh, having some notable content. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll get to talk about that in a moment. We should we should begin though by talking about the 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 story you wrote for the August issue, um, the new chess boom, which I think uh, readers are going to be very excited to to get a look at, and I think they're going to learn a lot. Uh, but let's let's talk about the cover story. So, when when we were talking about this during the development process, it felt like there was so much that you could have covered, and and so many different angles that you could have taken. And so I was curious to know why you decided to begin the way you did by comparing this to the Fisher boom. What what makes you think this this comparison between the the Fisher boom when when uh, Fisher was running up to the world championship and then just after his victory? What makes it comparable to to what's going on right now? Yeah. Um, well, actually, when you first contacted me to write the article, um, one of my first questions was like, who exactly is the the Chess Life readers? Um, I, I kind of presumed in, and we, we talked about this a little bit, that um, a, probably a good portion of the readership might not be so invested in kind of the, the Twitch ecosystem or just the, the online uh, chess bubble in general. Um, so I, I wanted to make an effort to put what's currently going on in context and compare it to um, to something that almost all of us within the chess community knows, this uh, kind of era in, in 1972. Um, where chess was was kind of all over mainstream and vast new audience was taking up the game. Um, and unfortunately, I think in the, the 1970s, it was not like a prolonged boom because like, shortly after the match, Fisher kind of disappeared from the scene. And um, it took, I mean, it took so many years until until ch- chess was kind of revived and then reach kind of the mainstream presence that we're seeing today. So, um, yeah, the main goal is really to put it in, in context and then have something to compare uh, what we're going through now. When, when I was thinking about this and thinking about the comparison you made, I, I couldn't help but wonder whether or not, or, or, or the degree to which maybe, um, this new boom that, that you described so well in this article, whether or not it's, it's at least partially an accident of, of circumstance. Um, I mean, there's no, you know, getting around the elephant in the room. Uh, COVID has kept so many of us inside looking for ways to entertain ourselves. And I I wonder if you could talk about whether or not you think the success of chess streaming has something to do with this or, or whether it would have happened anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, the whole notion that the world kind of is going through and went through lockdown and sporting events were canceled and uh, people have been searching for new forms of entertainment, uh, especially online, has definitely played a role. And chess has been kind of a perfect fit uh, in, in the form of entertainment, but also a form of competition that you can just do, do from home uh, just with an internet connection. Um, I think leading up to this year, there has definitely been kind of a, a buildup in the online space. Um, I mean, in 20, so in 2017, 
chess.com announcer partnership with Twitch and just brought on or kind of just incentivized a whole new um, kind of crowd of streamers, uh, chess streamers to just produce, uh, produce content on a consistent basis. And um, I mean, for, for several years straight, and even before this, like we, we can talk about uh, chess network, chess bras, um, a lot of people who, who started around 2017. Um, I, I started shortly after graduating, uh, late 2017. Um, it made it made chess more, I think, accessible and entertaining for a wider audience, where you can hop on and see a very strong player like, kind of talk through their thoughts during a game. And um, I think it, it kind of changed the stereotype for chess that uh, it's not just a game played in like a really quiet room with games lasting what five to six hours um, and we see that especially with with online blitz uh, these days where it can be very fast-paced and entertaining um, so I, I think uh, even before covid there's kind of this buildup um, of, of interest in the online space and then of course uh, this year I think many factors which led to chess kind of exploding and, and reaching uh, a, a much bigger audience. Yeah, I um, one of the things I like about your article is that you you do a very good job of sort of telling the backstory uh, to to this explosion this year. You you mention so many of the the streamers and video producers who who really paved the way for this. Um, but it seems like um, Hikaru Nakamura, his move into streaming. Uh, was kind of like an inflection point for this. Uh, and he certainly has brought a, a whole new set of eyeballs to to chess, both uh, to, to chess streaming in the chess community and also among streamers. So you talked to him in June on stream for this article. What did he tell you, um, and, and what can other potential streamers learn from his example? Yeah, well, uh, I should add some context that we, we had kind of an interview while playing Hand and Brain, uh, and the video is on his YouTube channel. It was uh, somewhat of a mess from the chess side where we were teaming up uh, against much lower rated competition and we were struggling to win. Um, but in terms of what he told me about, uh, I mean, just his story and, and, and his, um, his success in general, it really seems that he's, um, he's in it to, to try and grow the game and, and um, to ex- expose chess to as many eyeballs as possible. Um, I mean, if he wanted to, he could just kind of be, uh, just a professional player. Like he's already made a, a pretty good living, but, um, I mean, the, the notion of kind of building an, an online audience and providing value for, uh, for, for more than just a few people, I think is, is very important to him as is very important to, to so many other streamers in the space. Um, and he's, um, I mean, I asked him a few questions about kind of his work ethic and, and where he finds energy to, uh, to, to stream kind of day after day. So if you look at his, um, at least his stream history, uh, starting, I think starting in May, it's, it's been very rare that he's skipped a single day of streaming. And in the month of May, May through June, he was averaging around six hours per day, which is, um, I mean, it's, more than just a full-time job because he's doing work uh, off stream too, of course, preparing for his competitions, handling a lot of kind of logistics and uh, collaborations. Um, 
so I think one of the reasons why he's he's been so successful is is kind of the, the consistency and work ethic, uh, not only on Twitch, but also um, on YouTube, too. If you go back well over a year, um, he has a, has a small team of, uh, of people that's helped him kind of put out daily content on his YouTube channel. And whenever, regardless of, of what kind of media you're creating, whether it be video content or written content or podcasts, if, if you're putting out content consistently and, um, and it's interesting and valuable, then, then an audience will keep coming back and the, the audience will continue to grow. And that's definitely what we've, uh, we've seen with him. I, I really like how you talk about the energy component of this and, and the, the fact that he does it day after day. Um, you know, I've, um, I've tried, uh, streaming, uh, blitz events here for Nebraska when we have, um, you know, we have some events on Lee Chess on Monday nights or, or on chess.com on Thursday nights just to keep people playing and talking to each other. And, I mean, th- that you guys can play competent chess <laughs> and talk at the same time blows my mind because I do it for an hour and at the end of it I'm, I'm, I'm putty. Mm. I'm, you know, I, I can barely think. So I, I, I just don't know how you guys have the energy for it and how you can, I mean, play such good moves. Well, it's, it's very difficult, especially when streaming and trying to engage with audience and explain your thoughts while playing, especially a blitz game. Uh, when I first started streaming, it was incredibly difficult to kind of do this multitasking. Um, but Hikaru is like incredibly talented with this, where he has so much, I, I guess, built-in intuition that a lot of the moves are just kind of subconscious for him. And this allows him to, to be even more entertaining, where he's just continually answering questions from the chat, even in like competitive events like Toggle Tuesday, or, uh, or these uh, kind of high-level blitz matches that he does. So I think it's, it's kind of a skill that can be developed, but I think Hikaru definitely has some talent for it. So one of the, one of the things you talk about in here, and, and that we should talk about since the, the next uh, iteration of it is coming up this month, is PogChamps. Uh, so first of all, what is PogChamps? Since, uh, for, for people who may not have read the article. Of course. Uh, I, I do dive into to PogChamps in the article, but um, the... The, the first uh, first kind of PogChamps competition took place in June. Uh, it was sponsored by uh, Chess.com and Twitch. And it brought together not professional chess players, but really professional streamers and online personalities from all different categories um, who kind of showed an interest in chess. And um, they, they competed over the course of two weeks in a really kind of entertaining tournament. Um, I think the first, first PogChamps featured, I believe, a $50,000 prize fund. Um, and leading up to the competition, the PogChamps participants were assigned coaches where they had kind of lessons on live stream. And um, it was great for the overall audience because um, you know, a, a large portion of people watching are relatively new to chess or, uh, or um, kind of moderately be- beginning. So um, I, I think the, the aspect of, of watching a live lesson that's catered towards a more beginning player um, is, is very educational. And then like during, during the actual pod champs, uh, I mean, there's streamers with kind of millions of followers. Um, I don't know how many listeners will, will recognize these names, but uh, like Moist Critical, XQC, uh, Fusely, BoxBox, um, known from, from a variety of uh, like other, other video games. 
um, they, they have huge audiences that are watching and uh, the content was, uh, was not only educational, but also very entertaining. And uh, in the article, we do publish the uh, the critical game for uh, for chess theory mm-hmm. between XQC and Moist Critical. Uh, what happened in that game? Sure. Yeah. This um, I think there is some statement after the uh, after the game took place, or like a week after that, the the resulting YouTube video was one of the only trending chess YouTube videos of all time. Um, <laughs> Essentially, XQC lost in six moves. And if you watch the game, it, it doesn't last longer than a minute. Uh, and the amazing thing, okay, not, not only the fact that I think close to 30 or 40,000 people were watching live, um, but Moist Critical, who had uh, a, a pretty good competition, um, he was being coached by Nerditsky. And in preparation for that game, the day before, Neroditsky showed him the exact checkmate which took place. This kind of six move, um, somewhat of a, a scholar's mate in, in the Scotch game. And XQC walked right into it. So it was, uh, it's pretty funny on multiple le- levels. I, w- I was curious to get your thoughts about this because I've watched some of the, the coaching videos that have been, uh, that were done and some of the streaming that was done of the coaching. In fact, I saw... Uh, Anna Rudolph doing some coaching tonight, I think. And I'm, I'm curious what you think about um, focusing on... Uh, she, she was working on uh, King and Pawn Endgames and the opposition, which seems uh, sort of reasonable to me, although I, I might quibble with it for, for beginners. Um, but I, I wonder what you think about opening preparation for people who are brand new to the game. Do, do you think that 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 made sense or I mean, I guess you can't argue with results in this case, but, but is that something that, that seems like a, a reasonable way to approach teaching these people? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think it, it's important to teach, uh, opening understanding and the, the right, the, the right approach where, um, I, I think a common mistake a lot of newer players make, and this doesn't just apply to pod champs participants, uh, but more just in general is a lot of players will focus just purely on memorizing opening variations, which can only get you so far. Um, I think opening, like, opening play is important, but it's much more important to understand the principles and ideas behind the moves that you're playing and to be in a situation where if your opponent does something that you haven't seen before, you can, you can kind of think critically about it and, and react appropriately. So um, I think a, a lot of the coaches... Uh, at least with pod champs are are doing a lot of kind of opening preparation, but really trying to to emphasize ideas behind the moves. Okay. And I actually did a, a coaching session recently with uh, with David Packman. He's a, a political commentator who will be playing in the pod champs too. And we we did a, a bit of opening preparation because he was just clueless what to play with black. So I, I gave him a starting point of some simple uh, simple repertoire, Sicilian and uh, and Kings Indian, just to get get him going. So Pog Champs 2, what is, uh, when will this be happening? And, and so do we know who will be in the field? Yeah, so Chess.com posted uh, an article not too long ago. Um, I'm not sure if the full participant list has been announced yet. Uh, one of the most notable names is, uh, is a mountain from Game of Thrones. He's a big fellow. Yeah, I think, I think he's considered the strongest man in the world. Um, so it's it's been interesting to watch him on stream, and he's collaborated with uh, with the Botez sisters and Hikaru 
I think some others too. I, I saw him talking to Hans Niemann, and he was he was uh, he was big upping uh, Niemann and telling him he was going to be a success, and it, it was kind of fun to see. Yeah, he was. Um, well, Hans was coaching him chess, and while while he was like trying to play chess, uh, he was coaching Hans in weightlifting. <laughs> and if you watch on stream, Hans just trying to to lift some dumbbells. <laughs> there's a there's a whole new avenue for streaming that opened up right there. Oh yes. Um, one of the other things I really liked about this article is you gave quite a bit of uh, sort of behind-the-scenes knowledge about what it takes to stream, the equipment you might need, um, what to think about if you're considering getting into it. Could you just sort of summarize your thoughts on that for anyone who might be listening to this and thinking, boy, I, sh- I should start streaming right now? Oh, yeah. Um, so I'll say that streaming, I think I mentioned this in the article, but streaming is a, it's kind of a skill that's developed over time. And there's so many different facets to it, where it's not just kind of turning on the, the computer and pressing a button and going live, um, but there, there is an element of, of understanding the software, understanding design, being able to speak comfortably and in front of a camera, which was one of the hardest parts for me when I first started. I was just terrified in, of, uh, of speaking in front of people. Um, and, then, uh, and then there's a whole notion of kind of Going a community and and keeping people coming back and providing value and keeping things educational and entertaining and building your brand. So I tried to provide uh, as much value as possible within the constraints of the, the magazine uh, to people who who might be interested in uh, in, in tinkering with, uh, with with starting a Twitch stream. So I, I want to talk a little bit about how you got to this point in your in your career. Um, according to your website, you started playing chess at age seven. And pretty quickly, you were active in, in both local and national scholastics. Um, in high school, you played for the Niles North chess team, where you were featured in a movie called Chess State. That's right. Um, a 2014 documentary that focused on the Illinois High School uh, Association State Chess Tournament, uh, which bills itself as the largest team tournament in the world. So, so first of all, tell us about those tournaments. What are they like? They, they seem kind of overwhelming. Yeah, there were a lot of... Uh a lot of players participate in, in those. It's, it's been in existence for, uh, for so many years now. I think the, um, one of them took place this year, I think in February before all the lockdown. Um, but I, th- I think it was a good experience for me because it was my first real exposure to team chess. And it was uh, an eight-board team. Um, and it featured, I think, well over 120 teams from around the state of Illinois, many of whom are not necessarily like U.S. chess-rated players, but have just joined their high school chess team looking to, to compete. Um, so it was uh, definitely a lot of pride and glory on the line for, uh, for the team that, uh, that could win the state title. Um, I think my team, Niles North, won it, uh, won it two years that I was, uh, I was attending. Um, but yeah, like in, in terms of just team chess, I think uh, it, it was my first introduction to, to, uh, to actually teaching lower level players. Uh, as board one on my team, I was, uh, was always helping the, the lower rated team members and that kind of, um, I guess, eventually evolved into, uh, into coaching and, um, and, and doing more, more educational work. We should talk more about coaching in a minute, but I, I do want to ask about this. Um, you were... You were featured in this movie. I mean, when I went back, I, I, I remember I, I've seen it, although it's been a few years, so I don't really remember all of the details, but I went back and looked at the trailer, and uh, you're featured fairly prominently in there. And I, I wonder, uh, especially given that it came out when you were in college, 
what was it like for you to, to, to go through that again, to, to see yourself four years ago, so to speak, um, you know, to, to have the, your homecoming king status uh, trumpeted for all to see across the world, to, to see one of your classmates profess their desire to marry you. Um, th- this was all in the trailer. What was that like watching yourself like in a time capsule? Yeah, it's it was pretty surreal. It's still surreal when I uh, when I watch it, even um, even uh, these days. I, I haven't watched it in a few months, but sometimes I'll, I'll just go back and, and relive some of the nostalgia. Um, but yeah, it was definitely very interesting because in high school I was definitely more introverted and a lot more shy, and not necessarily enjoying the spotlight. Um, and I, I was followed around by, it was basically a, a one, one person crew who, who did all the filming, all the editing, um, shout out to, to Rick Riso, who really, um, was responsible for producing the film. Um, so I think it was a good experience to just kind of just have exposure. And also it kind of forced me to be more, I guess, more willing to speak in front of the camera. Uh, when I watch it, sometimes I'll, I'll cringe based on like how I, I would answer questions and was clearly not so comfortable speaking, uh, speaking in, in like a documentary film. But uh, I think it was a good experience and I uh, don't have too many regrets. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking forward. I'm, I was thinking I'm going to go back and watch that now since uh, we all have so much time on our hands with, with COVID right. and all. So um, you, you ended up winning the K-12 championship in 2011. And you had a perfect score. Uh, was that your your only national championship? And and what was it like to 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 get to be national champion? Yeah, it was another kind of surreal experience. Um, I know I have some vague memory, like entering high school and and realizing I, I would only have four chances to to win this this competition. Um, and the the year prior to to having the the perfect score, I finished with some abysmal like four out of seven i was like one of the top seeds um so the year that i won i I really tried to put no pressure on myself and and just tried to enjoy the competition and uh had a few upsets Uh, i think i beat uh beat mark arnold in the final round uh to clinch the the title and um yeah it's probably one of my my most memorable one of my proudest chess accomplishments um, and upon coming home from that competition, I mean, my, my classmates, my whole school was, was incredibly supportive. Uh, they had this whole, um, Eric Rosen day, um, that, that featured a lot of cake and just special recognition for, uh, from all the student body. And actually the village of Skokie, my, my hometown also had their, their own Eric Rosen day where they, they honored me at some, uh, village mayor's meeting. Um, so yeah, it was very humbling and uh, yeah, very fond memories of it. So speaking of Illinois, um, I, I know that you got your, your BA from Webster, but you also went to the University of Illinois for uh, for two years, three years? Uh, yeah, about two years. And, and while you were there, you, you helped their chess team punch well above their weight at the Pan Ams. So as the spouse of a Illinois alumni, shout out to, Sham, uh, to uh, Shambana and uh, to Columbia Street Roastery, my, my favorite coffee roaster in uh, Champaign. I, I know that the, the University of Illinois team is not funded like Webster or UT Dallas or SLU or any of these places. Um, talk about what it was like to play on that team. And I, I think you were playing with some of the people you used to compete with in the IHSA tournaments. So what, what was it like to, to play for a team like that um, and, and to have such success at, at the Pan Ams? 
Yeah, I mean, of course, um, having gone to Webster and kind of living through uh, both experiences, I can say it was much different than than going to school for chess on a full ride. I mean, the the chess club and chess team was entirely student run. And yeah, a good portion of the team were players who I grew up with uh, from the scholastic scene. Uh, we had a few few national masters. We had one exchange student from China who, who was vastly underrated, right? He yeah. So he uh, his name is is Leo. He he played chess when he was like eleven or twelve. He represented China in some world youth championships, and then just stopped uh, to pursue academics. And then when he attended University of Illinois, he um, he stopped by our chess booth at like the, the activities day um, as the semester started. And he, he beat one of our strongest players. And uh, he was our, our secret weapon on board four in Pan Ams because um, he, he still had a FIDE rating, but he was clearly underrated and he was incredibly hardworking. Like he was um, he, he studied a lot in preparation for the Pan American championships and actually the first first time that i went and that we we went as a team uh he went six out of six on board four and uh was one of the main reasons we were able to qualify for the final four and be the only um only non really funded or non-scholarship team to to do so 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 it sounds like as you say this was a very different experience than you had at webster um so at, at Webster University, which is in St. Louis, um, uh, some of our listeners may not be familiar with it, but uh, it's a very, I mean, probably the most famous chess program in the country, led by Susan Polgar, um, home to any number of top players. And what was it like for you to go from the University of, uh, of Illinois to Webster, where all of a sudden you're surrounded by some of the world's elite, you have constant coaching from you know one of the strongest uh, female players of all time. Uh, you have access to all the the materials you could possibly need. Uh, what was that like? What did you What did you learn there? What did you take away from the experience? Sure. Uh, I mean, it was definitely culture shock because I mean, when you're you go from being the highest rated player in the room to one of the lowest rated players in the room, uh, just offers you a, a much different perspective on the game. Uh, it was very humbling to just be surrounded by um, by so many players who are just much stronger than me. Um, I was, I, I think my, uh, my last year at Webster, I played board four on the C team. So, um, compare that to U of I, where I was board one on the A team. So, um, I definitely learned a lot about how grandmasters train and we would have kind of regular study sessions where we solved like very, very difficult exercises. We trained by kind of playing out, uh, thematic positions um, where we would uh, work on either defending or very complex positions or end games. Um, so it was more kind of targeted training towards what, what each of us kind of needed to work on. And then, I mean, the resources that were provided too, I mean, there, there's a library there of, of well over a thousand books. Uh, we had access to, of course, all the, the best software and uh, databases and engines um, so it's definitely a great experience to improve at chess. Um, I, I would like to think that I, I did improve after spending two years there. Um, but it was a, a bit strange that I, like once I attended Webster, uh, my rating just plummeted. Um, I, I think I reached my peak right before attending Webster. I was rated 24, 25 feet a. 
And then um, after about a year, my, my rating dipped. Um, but that was also around the point where I was uh, kind of made the realization I wanted to focus more on coaching and more um, at the time I was doing a lot of freelance work uh, with design and, and web development and photography. So I had a lot of things going and, um, and realized that um, at least like really serious chess was, was not my, uh, my top priority. The, the coaching part of this is something I was, I was going to ask you about. So this is a good segue in. Um, you, you mentioned some of the coaches you've had on your website. So Tamara Golove, Dmitry Gurevich, Yuri Shulman, uh, Mezgin Aminoff, uh, and of course all the, the coaching you had at Webster. I, I wonder what the most important things you took away from that coaching might be, and I wonder how it influences you when you coach other people. Sure. Um, I mean, that, that's a very heavy question. I feel like there, there's a lot of ways to answer that. I've done my job. Uh, yeah. Um, each coach kind of offered, definitely offered um, a, a different kind of set of, uh, I guess, a set of tools, a, a different perspective. Um, I mean, my first coach, uh, Tamara Golove, is also the, the childhood, childhood coach of Boris Galfond um, and Yuri Shulman. Um, she started working with me, I think, when I was... Uh, eight or nine years old and she provided me just a very very good foundation um introduced me to a lot of like great training materials a lot of good tactic books um provided me with opening repertoire and uh taught me a lot of a lot of things which i still apply today like all these theoretical end games um and i think from at least having that sort of foundation uh i was able to progress at a, a quicker rate um, and then the next coach after tomorrow was, was Dmitry Gurevich, who, um, I mean, he, I started working with him when I was around 1600 and he, he was my main coach all the way through like close to 2400. Um, he also provided me, um, just tremendous insight with kind of positional play and directing me towards studying the games of Karpov and Smyslov. And that definitely had a, a very good impression on, uh, on my own play. Um, and he also provided like some great kind of um, support just with psychology and kind of coping with pressure and keeping your composure in, in difficult situations. Um, I think he, he really helped instill like a, a very important mindset, like more growth mindset, where you, you really just have to take away lessons from each game, regardless of the results. Um, and of course, Yuri and Mezgin also um, I've attended many camps with over the years and they um, they, they've helped a lot with, with opening preparation, especially in, in more serious tournaments. You, you mentioned books. I, I should ask you, since um, I do have a bit of an interest in chess literature, um, what are your favorite chess books, and uh, have, you, have you read any recently that have, that have sort of stuck out to you? So I'm actually um, I'm not a big book junkie, uh, at least when it comes to chess books. Um, the, my default answer to like favorite chess book is the book Imagination in Chess by Gabridashvili, uh, which is hard to find a print version. Actually, it's it's been reprinted. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, so if you go to him, I because uh, a lot of people recommend this book, and it's for the longest time you couldn't get it, or mm-hmm. if, if you did, it would be like you know eight thousand dollars on some Amazon used book. That's right. <laughs> uh, but um, for some, I guess I don't know if they reprinted it or if it's a print on demand, but you can get it again. So if you need another copy, mm. now's the time to do it. Yeah, I will say it's uh, it's a pretty difficult book um and then the target audience for the book is probably 2000 plus but um it, it provides like a, a lot of great uh and difficult exercises 
uh, for players that are, are looking to, to take their game to higher levels. And um, I, I think it was one of the main books that helped me go from, from FM to IM. Wow. Um, especially like during my gap semester between transferring to, from University of Illinois to Webster, uh, I spent a good, good amount of time working through that book uh, with a training partner and, and we solved most of the exercises in that book. So definitely helped sharpen my game up. That sounds like a lot of work. Wow. Um, your, your, your undergraduate degree is in digital media. And I wonder um, how that has helped you with your streaming and, and whether or not um, you, you sort of took that major with a view towards what you're doing now. Yeah, so I, I always had kind of a, a passion for just visual media. Um, in high school, I, I was very into photography, worked on my, my school's yearbook, and uh, was very into Photoshop as well. And then this is one of the reasons actually why I transferred from University of Illinois to Webster was I started University of Illinois in computer science because um, at the time I was also kind of into math and, and, and programming. Um, but then after a, a few a uh, couple years there, I realized I was just more passionate about, uh, about more kind of front end media, uh, more application based uh, things. And um and unfortunately, like University of Illinois didn't have a, a clear program for what I wanted to do. That was one of the main reasons why I switched to Webster, even though it's a smaller school. They, they had a, a degree in interactive digital media, and it encompassed everything I was kind of interested in, um, including, um, I mean, web development, UI, UX, uh, photography, video editing. And a lot of that has overlapped with um, what I do kind of in the chess world with streaming and YouTube content, and writing, um, and more kind of a creative medium. So um, in terms of what I learned at Webster, I, I, I'll, I'll admit that I, I probably learned m more from just watching YouTube videos and, uh, and like online courses than any like single college course. Um, but I, I did have like a few very good professors at Webster who guided me um, and offered like a lot of more... Um, more individualized advice. Yeah, I, I do want to say just you know, speaking from my own experience of the the Twitchosphere and and the sort of the chess media ecosystem right now, um, your background in this I think really sort of benefits you because the the polish of what you do is very impressive and it, it compares very well with most of the the things I've seen elsewhere. So. Um, yeah, it, it seems to have worked out very well for you in this regard. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, um, I, I kind of pursued the major knowing that um, like digital media just combines well with like any other category, um, like well beyond chess. So I, I knew it would open up uh, kind of the most most amount of doors in the future. So, a final question for you: um, What's next? What's next for Eric Rosen? Uh, Ten years from now, where do you see yourself? I don't even know where I'll see myself like six months from now. Uh, I've, I've been spending the past many weeks just fantasizing about traveling like all over the world. Um, I think we all have. And wishing yeah. the flights were just not banned all over the place. But um, at, okay, so at least in the next like few months, I, I plan to continue uh, pursuing content on, on Twitch and YouTube. I, I stream um, several times a week. And uh, at least for the past three weeks I've been putting out uh, daily YouTube videos um, and it takes a lot of work. I do all, all the kind of editing and thumbnail design and of, um, description writing on my own. 
Um, but I, I really enjoyed the process. And when, when lockdown is still in place, and that's kind of the, the thing I'll do. Um, I mean, more long term, I don't see myself stopping with the online content anytime soon. Um, at some point, I might want to kind of diversify. I, I have a lot of other interests and might want to start like a second YouTube channel, um, kind of delving into like digital marketing and photography and, and more, more digital media um, areas. Uh, but for now, I'm, I'm really enjoying just uh, the, the chess space online. And um, yeah, just just waiting for the ability to travel again and having a little bit of cabin fever. So um, yeah, looking forward to the, the first spontaneous trip. All right. Well, Eric, um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I, I think the, the, the article was a complete success. I couldn't be happier with what you did with it. And I think our readers are really going to enjoy it. And, and but most of all, I think they're going to learn something from it. So uh, well done. And uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much, Sean. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.